Hello and welcome to Vashley Raiding. I'm Dave Stoyald. And I'm Alexander Wales, and I'm also Cthulhu Ray Jepsen. Good to have you on, Cthulhu Ray Jepsen. Yeah. So I was completely unaware that you were writing Worth a Candle. It was somewhere on my list of things to read. I was, like, getting to it little by little. And then once I found out, I basically realized, like, yeah, I'm about halfway through Twig and decided to take a break from Twig and started reading it. And I think I finished it in... Maybe five or six days of just, like, every time I had a chance to read, just reading constantly. Yeah. Um, it's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. What made you decide to write it under pseudonym? So I've had that pseudonym for two years now, two and a half, something like that. Mm-hmm. And when I started doing the R Rational weekly challenges, mm-hmm. I still wanted to participate in them, but I didn't want to, like, you know, I didn't want that bias coming into the contest. I like posted them and then posted that because my name is or the Alexander Wales pseudonym is known and then I didn't want flair that Reddit will give posts but uh, for comments by the original poster right. I didn't want that either and I I really like the weekly challenges if but the the reason I I run them is because I and you want to be able to participate yeah yeah uh, and usually um, I did the 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 world building subreddit had weekly and then they moved to monthly and mm-hmm. then they stopped challenges that I, I did a whole bunch of those i won like seven or eight times cool which was a lot of fun i, I really enjoyed it right and then they they stopped and I, maybe they started up again but that was my i kind of stopped going to the subreddit after those were gone gotcha uh, but i wanted something like that for for our rational and we've I've been running those for about two years now. Okay. And so you had the pseudonym in hand and you were like, let me write this under pseudonym instead of under Alexander Wales for a particular... Yeah. Okay. So writing under pseudonym, there are a couple different reasons as I see it to do it. The first is branding. Mm -hmm. Like if you are J.K. Rowling and you want to write these Cormorant Strike detective novels, you don't want like kids picking them up and being like, this isn't Harry Potter. Right. Right. It's pretty common for authors to do that. Like if someone writes primarily dramas, they'll um, write under a pseudonym for mm-hmm. comedy or something like that. The other reason is coming into a work, people will a- attach certain, I guess, associations with an author. Mm-hmm. I mean, p- part of that's branding. And part of it is if you write if you write a lot and you write things that people have actually read, they'll come into a thing and they'll compare it to the other thing that they read. That partly comes back to branding, but it's also sort of expectations. And it's, you know, I, I didn't want people to treat me with kid gloves mm-hmm. in, in terms of criticism. And I didn't want people reading just because of name recognition, gotcha. which I thought, I mean, you know, people have told me that they would have read if they Knew that I wrote it. Yeah. Right. So, so all the audience for Worth Candle is, in my opinion, come by without whatever benefits or detriments the Alexander Wales name would have brought to it. Right. I guess that's uh, that's the primary reason. And then I partly it's because there's I don't know I consider it a personal story mm-hmm. that I like fully want attached to me, but I I kind of don't care about that so much because I don't know I I know a lot more people online than. Mm-hmm. In real life, I guess. And most people in real life aren't going to read the story. Right. So, yeah, we can get into that in a bit later on. But, yeah, the the decision to write under pseudonym to kind of, like, have a free expectations sort of metric new determination of, like, where your writing's at by seeing where people, how people respond to the, to the pseudonym rather than to the established name. Yeah. Is a thing that a lot of writers do. And 
I think it's always really interesting to see how successful writers will tend to reach... It's always interesting to me, like, when they make the decision, if it's a decision and it doesn't just, like, get leaked somehow, right, to make it come out that they were, like, seeing it, like, grow. And obviously, Worth the Candle was quite popular on, on our national, actually, even before before you mentioned that it was you. Yeah, it was, I think it's second most popular after Mother of Learning, yeah. which is, like, knocking it out of the park every time. Right. So. So you did you basically think like okay experiment done time to you know let it out or was there some other you, thing? Well, it was partly that it was partly that I wanted to accept money on Patreon yes or through PayPal and I would have ethical problems doing that under a second pseudonym. Right, you actually um, made the decision on Patreon to I believe um, put on hold right for a while. Yeah, well, because I Glimwardens was was on hold and I wasn't right. publishing anything else. I was like writing other things, but I kind of wanted to be free to just write whatever I wanted. Yeah. So that was actually, in my view anyway, like that was a pretty virtuous like thing to do. Uh, so I think the decision makes sense eventually to be like, all right, well, I've been writing this for these past few years. Yeah. Time to reconnect the two. Has the response... And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, part, part of it also is that it's kind of a pain to have two accounts. Mm-hmm. And then just like need to swap back and forth between the two of them at regular intervals. Right. And the other thing is that like, I had created a, a second pseudonym that also had its own like baggage and like weight to it, and it's like, well, this is, this is not serving me any like functional purpose. Like, right. if I want an anonymous account, I have a third account for that yeah. now. So, <laughs> well, now you've just unleashed speculation on what the third account is. Uh, we can edit that out if you want. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, I, I I've always I've always been fairly open about having alt accounts because I don't want to be like. Mm-hmm. Telling people I not I don't have alt accounts when I do. You gotta you've gotta practice that neither confirm nor deny stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I I have, I have a bunch of I have a bunch of rules for for how to ethically run an alt account. Like you don't you don't lie about your credentials mm-hmm. about like who you are. Never comment on your own stuff. I have screwed up a few times by using the wrong account and then you can't just like delete it. Yeah. And then re-say it with the other account. But I don't know. It's it's one of the things I think about because I think there's a lot of use in having multiple pseudonyms, but I didn't wanna. Right. Yeah, I, I um, have been thinking about that for myself a couple times. I've mostly just kept the same pseudonym because it's kind of... I, like, I made something of a conscious choice to only ever post under one name on pretty much every site that I'm on as a form of, like, self-accountability thing. Yeah. Like, I like the idea of, of having an established presence on the internet in general that I can just kind of... Extra, like an extra layer of like make sure I stand behind the things that I say or if I say things that I later regret like I can I can at least like still see them and stuff like that but I, I think your your rules for pseudonym are actually really really good and probably the best way to do it if you're going to so I'm glad it worked out super well for you in this case and I hope it continues to because Worth the Candle's great like I I know a lot of people expressed a lot of uh, like somewhat disappointment that there wasn't another just rational writer yeah. out there that they would really enjoy reading more from. But it just does mean, you know, that you can work on the sly while no one's aware of it and push out more push out content that they, you know, can get to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, so so for people who haven't read Worth the Candle, it is I'm going to describe it as basically a self insert. Is that accurate? Um yeah. Self insert ish. Ish, right. There, there's like probably a whole discussion to be had about self-inserts, but I, I will boil my opinion down mm-hmm. to a self-insert is any time that you are taking someone who is mostly like you mm-hmm. and you make most of the decisions about them based on what you would do, and most of their character traits are based on on you. Right. So the the 
protagonist of Word the Candle is Juniper Smith, which is obviously not my actual name. Mm-hmm. There are a whole bunch of details that are changed, partly because I wanted to talk about uh, some of the personal stuff in there at like uh, a distance removed from myself, and partly because a lot of autobiographical stuff, I think if you're writing it, you don't want to just drag other people in, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So I don't want to like directly write about things, write things about people, and then they have no form to respond. Right. You know, unflattering depictions of them can just be of a, of a fictional character. Right. So the story involves uh, the character Juniper Smith getting sucked into a world that is an amalgamation of a lot of the stories that he would create, worlds that he would create for his D&D campaigns, which is something that you've talked about, obviously, being a, a major passion of yours. Yeah. And I'm imagining, as I was reading this, obviously, knowing it was you at this time, that a lot of these are, like, I kind of laughed a few times because I thought of, like, how this was a great way for you to, I guess, like, make use of all the different, like, world building that you've done for, for just for funsies, like, over the years, right? Yeah. And just kind of throw in, like, hey, this is an interesting idea for a city I had here, interesting idea for a race I had here. And it's really interesting seeing the character's reaction to being in a world that's like the things he made, but subtly different. The impression I kind of got from the beginning, I'm not sure if this is explicitly said at some point, is that, like, the world of Arab has a history that has basically a lot of the stuff that he created in it, but it's, like, later on in its in its own world, it's later on in its history than the ones he created was. So, like, when, like, I don't, like, he didn't make these ideas of these, like, civilizations and stuff in a world with, like, trains, for example, did he? It's sort of set in a technological equivalent to, like, 1930s, mm-hmm. I think. I think I, I pegged my year, there's, like, a world-building thing, but I pegged my year as it being technologically equivalent to 1930 and then with a whole bunch of differences because you have all these different forms of magic that plug right. into technological holes. But part of the reason for that is because in my own games, I, I I had one that I've, I ran the campaign for probably a few years, but with different groups. It was a setting I made called Magus Europa, which I've probably talked about before, but it's 1713, mm-hmm. like our Earth... But then there's like dragons and gnomes and stuff, and like Isaac Newton is a, a gnomish wizard and who wrote his like instead of his uh, laws of motion, it's his laws of magic. And I built a wiki for that, and it's got like all this stuff in it. But I did time hopping quite a bit for world building. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes it's good to have a medieval era type thing, and sometimes it's good to you know jump to Victorian era because I really like trains yeah so so this was a a amalgamation world that would allow you to essentially have all these different worlds and then they're kind of taking place at this point in in the in the universe where there's just enough that's like out of place or different for the creator to not to not really know what to expect all the time yeah on top of that he is mostly it seems like or or exclusively a DD player uh but the interface that he enters the world with is not DD. right and more, so this more yeah, video gamey. Yeah, more video gamey. Reminded me of World of Darkness in, the, in a sense. It threw him for an extra loop, basically, because not only does he now have to get used to this world that he's not entirely comfortable with or familiar with, but also he had to understand like what the system was, what the best way to build your character would be, which he would know if it was a you know a system that he was already familiar with. So it was a really cool decision to have him have to navigate all that. Was this a system that you've 
designed for games that you've ran before, or was it for the story? It was for the story. I think I've read a fair number of, I'm a D&D character, but I know all the D&D rules mm-hmm. type thing, like Two-Year Emperor or mm-hmm. Harry Potter and the Natural 20. I think the problem there is that you get you get too in the weeds with the rules a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I won't say I totally avoided that, but partly you're, like, the reader will know more than the character, so you write, in some cases, so you kind of have to write for both cases, right. where you don't want to explain too much for people who are just going to be bored because they know everything, um, and you don't want to explain too little for people who aren't going to understand the context because they've never, you know, played tabletop or whatever. Right. So yeah, I, it was partly that. It was partly because I like exploring rule sets, and I think that if you did that stock D&D, it's sort of, the system is less interesting because it's a known system, and so you don't get as much exploration of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's just a known entity with known exploits that like anyone who is like serious about the rule systems would would know. It's also copyrighted. There's the um, system reference documents that are open source, but mm-hmm. I just didn't I didn't want to deal with any of that. That was another factor. Right. Yeah. So it it served a few functions, including also just being able to have a chapter titled um, June stares as character sheet. Yeah. Uh, and like have it be both for June's benefit and also for the for the reader's benefit. Yeah. And I don't know. I It's, it's one of the other things that are like fantasy races mm-hmm. included. And I just wanted to make them different enough. And I don't know. I didn't want to bring in a bunch of baggage from... No, that's not true. I wanted to bring in spe- very specific baggage from D&D that right. wasn't so connected to the rule set. Right. Makes sense. Cool. So this is a question that I was wondering. I'm, I don't know if this has been answered in, in one of the comment posts of which I... Started going back a little bit, but there's so many of them that you know. Yeah, well, there's so, there's so many <laughs> that I I don't I don't read every comment. Gotcha. I, it just it's sometimes like man, I could be like reading comments or I could be writing. Yeah. It seems like writing would be a better use of my time. Which I'm sure most people appreciate. Yeah. So, do you roll for this story? Like, do you do rolls for the story, or do you basically plot it out? I have. It kind of depends. I think that you get. I think that you tend to get bad results mm-hmm. if you roll. I will probably get some ire for that from the people who do quests uh-huh. who really enjoy that but i if if there's not like rolling makes things more real mm-hmm. in a sense because it's like the, there's actual tension that regular fiction doesn't have mm-hmm. i guess if if people know that you are rolling for for outcomes because then it's like oh my god this could actually just go horribly wrong and fail where narratively you would not expect it to right or i mean you can do that in an actual narrative, but people will just be like, "Oh, this was always intended to fail." Uh-huh. So you can kind of you can kind of strip back some expectations that people have about narrative. I don't generally roll though, just because it's it, I don't think that adds that much. And I mean, for quests, part of the part of the process also comes from the feedback you get from the readers, right? The decisions that yeah. they make plus the rolling. I mean, that's what makes tabletops in general work so well. Whereas if you're yeah. just doing it on your own, it's more of a adds a level of improv and, un- and unpredictability to the story but you're right like it can very easily yeah it's it's outcome generation right maybe less useful for a story if you have a particular story you want to tell yeah yeah so the like the level ups that, that june gets versus the the strength that the other characters have right do you think do you think of them as also having character sheets or do you basically just have a just a general idea of what they're good at and what they're bad at um i have character sheets for all the principal characters gotcha. not for not for the locusts. <laughs> I guess I actually don't have one for Valencia either. But I, I do have character sheets for them. Gotcha. For just for, for June it's important. Mm-hmm. 
because I just want to keep everything consistent. And if they're being posted in the work, I don't want to have, you know, continuity errors or, right. or things like that. So I, and then I do have character sheets for the others, partly because they've been mentioned in story mm-hmm. at the current point. I don't, partly just because it's kind of fun to, yeah. Make to go sheets. through your, to go through your system and be like, Oh, I, I it's like, uh, on the, the parahuman subreddit for, mm-hmm. for worm people will be like, Oh, let's, let's rate. Yeah. Let's yeah. give PRT ratings for like Superman and stuff. I, I, I do find that stuff kind of fun. It's yeah. not really writing per se, <laughs> but more along the lines of, of messing around with, uh, uh, game systems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this part forward, uh, spoilers up to chapter 84. I think it's on. Uh, yep. 84. The DM. Was that basically you? No comment. Okay. So, like I was saying before, like, you've got all these different, like, races, like, world events, magic systems, all that stuff. Is it still an evolving system, or do you have it all pretty much hammered out? I have it all pretty much hammered out. Let me see if I have it. I have a world-building document that has a bunch of stuff in it. There is, there's a timeline for the high school Earth stuff, and then there's a timeline that runs, that, that goes back, like, 600 years. Gotcha. I have a timeline of events as well. And then I have I have a list of things to pay off or revisit, mm-hmm. which is currently 27 items long, which I keep meaning to like, I keep meaning to be like, okay, gotta like, gotta like resolve these things. Gotta right. like, you know, you introduce this thing a ways back and it still needs its payoff and we're waiting for it. Mm-hmm. And then for like, for other stuff that's like not in the story yet, I think I have most, almost everything nailed down right now. Gotcha. So yeah, because there was a event recently where, somewhat recently at this point, uh, where he, my timeline for what's recent and not is a little messed up because I <laughs> ate it all in one go. His soul power essentially graduated to a level where he was able to see into a deeper level of his character sheet and like the nature of reality that he was in and saw these skills and magic trees and like all these different things that were either restricted to him or just were... I guess, like, available, but just not available to him right away, like the armor skills and stuff like that. And I was wondering, yeah. like, that while I was reading that, that seemed to me like a great moment for for a great moment for you to basically, like, you know, introduce the idea that there are these things outside of what's in the scope of the game that might be shuffled in and out as, as needed. So, like, yeah, what was the... What, was that something that you'd planned out from the beginning, that he would at some point unlock skills beyond the ones that we were familiar with? Because... Obviously, there were like blanks in the character sheet from the beginning that we never really understood, like knew what would go there. But right. things like unarmored, things like shield bearing, things like that were, were the kinds of stuff that like were restricted from him from the beginning, right? He wasn't able yeah. to. Yeah. Well, there. Okay, so there are forty skills on the skill sheet. They actually are all. They were all visible from the first chapter. Um, they were just white, so you could highlight and see all the skills oh. that, that were there. Um, <laughs> it was always my intent to to change them. I meant to do it later in the work but it felt like it felt like the 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 changes to his character sheet that have happened shuffled some skills around like they wanted to happen there mm-hmm. i guess part of what i'm doing with worth the candle is writing fast i'm almost up to 2000 words a day yeah my running average for the last like eight months speed of the speed of the chapters coming out is impressive and that's part of why i was wondering about how much of it's been planned out yeah it's mostly planned out mm-hmm. i have I have my list of like stuff that's coming. I think it's been fairly rare that I've added stuff in because I was like, hey, this will be a great place for this other thing mm-hmm. or shuffled order of events around. 
there was a part I, I I've I've partly been trying to just write fast and part of the reason I stalled on Glim Warden is because I had this sort of set schedule and there was this one chapter that I that needed to be like twice as long as it was. Mm-hmm. And I sort of sacrificed some to get past it and then it felt like everything was out of whack after that. Mm-hmm. So I was not following my instincts. So yeah, I, I have mostly everything plotted out. Uh but I'm willing to deviate from that when it feels logical to deviate from that. Mm-hmm. Both like in character or in universe and from a narrative perspective. There was a part in the climax for the Baron Jewel stuff where they fought Almond the Gold Mage. Mm-hmm. Was supposed to be in a cheese factory. Because like they have all this this like barren milk and barren bread. Right, right. And so the this cheese factory they just have like phonographs set up to say the magic words that'll just make like an endless supply of milk that gen- then gets processed into cheese. And so the cheese factory that Omen owns mm-hmm. is specifically mentioned early. And then I was just like, you know, why are we not just doing this in the tower? It makes so much more sense. <laughs> and so I, I do deviations from yeah. my plans like that when I'm just like, you know, this doesn't make any sense for them to be in this cheese factory. Gotcha. Um, so I've done that. I've done that a fair number of times. It's more common for me to shuffle specific events around. Mm-hmm. And I think there are, possibly at this point too many too many conversations between characters about what they're going to do uh but i i do find those helpful to have just so i can know that i'm not shortchanging things that are supposed to happen Mm -hmm. i guess it's a i mean it's a big party that's ultimately going to be there uh already it's at five people now right uh not counting not counting the loki yeah and you know, the more characters there are, like, exponentially, the more interactions kind of sort of have to take place in order to, like, give them all their due. Yeah, and it's it's kind of worth Candle's viewpoint limited mm-hmm. to either just Juniper or just things that Juniper... Can know about. Can know about or is willing to speculate on. Right. The the, the chapter from uh, Amar- Amaryllis? Yeah. Um, the, the chapter from Amaryllis' perspective was amusing, in part because of those parentheticals. Yeah. And... The humor actually in this, I was wanting to mention, the humor in this is, is really good too for that reason. There's a couple things actually that I saw in this story that I wanted to commend you on because they were things that I think that you've mentioned that you didn't think you were like as good as you wanted to be on them or were working to get better at them. Uh, and that was, that was one that I noticed that I thought was good, but also the romance in this is fantastic. Oh, good. Obviously the who is best girl situation is going to is going to occur for pretty much any fiction with yeah. a with a harem setup or even without a harem setup but i i thought i thought anyway that the the romance between june and, and fen has been fantastic and the flashbacks with you know his lamenting kind of over his relationship with tiff but also like the couple flashbacks where it was how it was formed and stuff were really well done too yeah you know part, aside from trying to write fast and try to feel my way through the story and get mm-hmm. that better intuitive, instinctive sense of story. Part of what I'm trying to do with Worth the Candle is be kind of experimental and mm-hmm. just work on things that I, I... I'm trying to write it in a way where I can have as fun a time writing as I can, yeah. I guess. And, and part of that is just, you know, being silly sometimes. Breaking from narrative conventions when I feel like it instead of just being <laughs> like, oh, no, no, I can't, I can't, like, do that because it's... I mean, the, the the quest names and the achievements they have they have story relevance even beyond the uh, immediate impression they have on on the characters, right? Like they're they're kind of a 
guidepost for the characters themselves to better understand like what kind of world they're in and what's expected of them and what how they're going to plan around the narrative and all that stuff. But the beyond the levels they serve at that function, um, the quests and the achievements in particular, which as far as I'm aware have no game function, they're just there for him to see and therefore there for us to see, are another great are a great source of humor, but also a great source of kind of playing with expectations. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's fun to kind of guess at like where you're going next with some of these things with like you said like there are so many threads that probably will not all get closed because ultimately it is a in story it is ultimately a a dm'd game it is a um simulation um but i mean i could be wrong about that maybe he will actually end up having sex with all seven party members well here's the here's the problem is there mm-hmm. there are a lot of open threads and then there are a lot of things that people have wrongly interpreted as intending to be open threads gotcha so if you sometimes just mention something casually offhand once, some people will take that as, oh my god, this is like a plot thing. Sure. Yeah, we all remember uh, the Cedric degrees in the glasses, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so if you... Uh, Worth Kindle's long mm-hmm. right now. It's not like super long, but it's it's long. It's pretty long, yeah. It's pretty long. And the, it, just the sheer length means that there's so much more room for people to pick up on individual things mm-hmm. or to read things or to like to like reread looking for clues and find clues that aren't actually clues so i'm not going to say i'm going to resolve every perceived to be open plot thread but i do have my list of of like 27 things that i think need to be paid off gotcha or or you know we're set up for a specific payoff mm-hmm. at the end and you can't always do those if, especially if you're you know kind of loose on your outline and even there's that risk, I think, when primary complaints that people have about, uh, how do I say this, non-rational fiction, I guess, or, or fiction that is not attempting to hew to those the rational fiction ideals, is that people will, a writer will just set something up and be like, hey, I got to pay this off, and then they'll pay it off whether it makes sense or not. Right. Um, and I don't want to trap myself into that and just be like, hey, you know, I, I. <laughs> I wanted to pay this off, and I guess I got to pay it off, but it's not going to be—it's not going to make any sense. Mm-hmm. I, I want it to make sense, if it, and if it, if it's a choice between making sense and paying something off, I'd rather just not pay it off. Right. The fun being of this, also partly being that again, you can you can put things out there as explicit communications to the main character that the readers then have to guess about the importance of. Um, but because in in story, it is just a DM having a sense of humor, it allows you to also have a sense of humor without necessarily needing to um, pay off on them. Yeah. Oh, right, I want to ask about... Uh, so, um, in terms of, of subverting expectations, so there's some stuff, like, I thought was really interesting. So the magic systems, you... Again, like, you 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 do a lot of world building, you have a lot of ideas for, for systems and things like that, and this is a great, like, kind of melting pot for you to play with all the different ideas you've had from from other stories you've written or worlds you've imagined or games that you've made or something. Have you had to do like a balancing rebalancing of things in terms of like what magic is, is allowed in the story or what, what like buffing any magic system. So they actually have a place in the story. Gold magic got a buff. Mm-hmm. It got a buff and then a nerf <laughs> thing, from, from how it had been. Cause I, one of the things I really like from D and D is prestige classes mm-hmm. because you can just do those sort of absent other stuff. And then you can, hand them out to players who want them mm-hmm. 
So in D&D prestige class, you have your normal classes, which is like fighter, wizard, bard, whatever. And then at level, at level it varies, uh, like usually like five or ten, depending. Um, you can get a prestige class, which has its own rules and like buffs and stuff. And I really like prestige classes because if someone's like, you know what, I want my thing to be that I'm like super into thrown weapons. Right. You can do that for them. Or a bard who like hyper specializes into lost lore. You can have them have their own prestige classes and then give them their own sort of rules and benefits for that. And you got to be kind of careful because, you know, whenever you homebrew anything, most of the core stuff has been like tested and errated in some cases, mm-hmm. or even if it hasn't been errated, there will be warnings for DMs out there on the message boards. So you got to be a little careful when you homebrew stuff. I'm, but yeah, I've, I've done some buffing and some, some nerfing, sometimes both just to find some semblance of balance, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't wholly need to be balanced. And then one of the other things is that the problem with D and D is that every class has to be balanced around a very specific type of gameplay. Uh, which is generally moving through a somewhat small space and having encounters mm-hmm. or talking to people. And there, there are a lot of things that D&D and most other tabletop games, to be fair, are like super bad at, like mass combat. D&D does not do well at all. Mm-hmm. Running a stronghold, D&D does pretty poorly. There was a supplement that I loved called the um, Stronghold Builder's Guidebook mm-hmm. that sort of tried to add simulation-esque rules on how, you know... Having your own garrison and... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of dumb because you basically spend a bunch of time just reading through this rule book and people are like, okay, like let's weigh the cost-benefit of adding this room where our horses are going to live or whatever. And how much is that going to cost? And we'll have to hire a stable hand. It's not really that much D&D. And the rules are kind of sloppy. <laughs> These are the kinds of things that, generally speaking probably function best through video games anyway because they're like lots of finicky little systems that like are designed to let you be able to like for example look at a spreadsheet of costs and benefits and make decisions in yeah. that manner right opposed to yeah. when people sit at a table for D, not usually what the sit down decisions are for yeah i mean people have a lot of fun with that stuff mm-hmm. like just we're gonna build our little fantasy keep and it's gonna have all these Neat features. I've, I've definitely wasted a bunch of sessions. Not wasted. Had fun right. with a bunch of sessions like that. But the bulk of the game is not designed for them. Yeah, the the game is not designed for those things, and the game is is not designed for a lot of things that are sort of mundane utility or mm-hmm. just you know utility outside of five people walking down a corridor, you know, fighting guards or monsters or right. going through traps or overcoming those types of obstacles i think this was actually mentioned in the story at some point when june mentioned something like how or maybe it was one of the discussions with his um earth earth group about how like games aren't really designed for a person to find a magic exploitable like magic item and then just like become the richest yeah the richest merchant in the world right yeah and like even if you do i mean then your game of D is over <laughs> right if you're just the richest merchant in the world you're you're spending the rest of your days making you know, trade deals yeah. or, or like buying and selling goods. That's not, you're not playing D&D anymore unless the DM just decides, okay, we're going to 
somehow to try to map this into somehow five people walking down a corridor mm-hmm. looking for battles. Or, I mean, you can do it. I and I have done it. It just is not what D and D is designed for. And as a consequence, most of the magic systems in typical D and D are designed around that sort of single combat or or small group squad combat type thing. Right. And one of the consequences of that is that a lot of it is just hilariously overpowered in terms of, like, society, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, you can just, like, you know, you can just, like, get a magic item that does the work of, like, 500 people at, like, level 3 or whatever. And it's just like, okay, well, in theory, we're just, like, wholly replacing a single village, right? Or, like, druids have spells that just would revolutionize agriculture or clerics can just, you know, offhand cure disease. And like, you know, who, who's ever going to lose a limb anymore if you can just go down to the local right. temple and get it replaced. So, uh, work handle has a bunch of stuff that is mundane utility. Some of the magic systems aren't, aren't meant to be used in a, in a five people walking down a corridor type situation at all. They're just, Things that ha- have more utility in construction or, um, or in like, I'm trying to think of one that's businesses that don't have to do with conflict, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Things that don't have to do with squad based combat. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, I mean, a lot of the magic items are sort of, they're non replicable, so they're more harmless in that sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I don't know. T- typical D&D rules are sort of like, okay, anyone can make this thing on repeat. Right. And most of it's just, you know, so absurdly expensive that no one would ever buy it, mm-hmm. which is how they handle the balance as far as society goes. But so the the magic items in this world are are uh, kind of one-offs like inspired by the gods kind of thing. Yeah. And the unique powers associated with them are uh, invested is what is what it's called is what's called like you have to you have to be descended from the original person. Who made it? No, so I don't think I don't know how how much I've actually spelled this out in the story. Um, there was there was a lot of it being spelled out. I think I'm I'm more confused just in terms of like how many. So there's like multiple ways that it can be invested in, in particular people. My question was more like the original investiture, how it occurs. Um, so when uh, magic items are created, magic items or magic buildings or mm-hmm. most other one of magic things are created through forge frenzy. And after that, there's a period of time before they sort of glom on to someone, usually okay. through use. So, yeah, the forger could actually just sell it to someone, and then it becomes their thing to pass on as they as the rule sees fit. Yeah, and that, I think it's I think this is mentioned, and not just something that's been living in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, that most kingdoms will just pay the costs of materials, right, or would or labor for the forge frenzy, in order to get that thing built yes and then they'll just take ownership of it yeah that's been mentioned along with a a stipend to the person who created it and that's sort of to balance out you know you don't want mad inventors going around trying to fulfill this crazy vision in their head Mm -hmm. on their own and then you get benefit out of it right so most of the magic items are are locked to particular people due to a number of of rules Uh, but there are some items that are like more i guess like free form like the the marzipan fairies for example anyone can eat them but yeah. You have to be invested um, to, to pull them out, right? Yeah, there are so there are hereditary items with various modes of what rules of 
what hereditary rules they're following, basically. Mm-hmm. And then there are also items that just stay unlocked to a, blo- to a bloodline. Mm-hmm. And then there are others that are investable. So you, you sort of give it over to someone and say, okay, this is yours for the time being. Right. Um, with different rules for that, depending on the item. Uh, so most of the items are, most of the items are tied to Amaryllis mm-hmm. in one way or another. And then she will invest them over to someone else. Right. I was wondering, like, what made you think of, so is this something that you designed for a different uh, campaign or world building kind of thing? Or was this something you designed for the story that you had, like, a purpose for designing it? Uh, the general idea of Forge Frenzy was mostly because I kind of hate how D&D does it. Mm-hmm. And I've hated it for a while. I hate I hate the the magic mart where you just go to this is a very common thing in D&D where you just go the characters all go to a magic mart and that magic mart will have whatever is in the dungeon master's guide or the magic item compendium and so the players will just sit there looking through and they'll be like I want this thing and that's somewhat convenient but it's also kind of like it takes it sucks all the magic out of magic items because mm-hmm. they're just these these known quantities and even if you restrict what's available in your magic marts, it's still kind of like, okay, this is just a thing that was in a book and it's from this, you know, rigid set right. of what's available in the splat books and the core books and stuff like that. There isn't the sense of exclusivity. There isn't the sense of like epicness to them. Yeah. So I always try to make my own magic items, even if they're something like, like Grax Herax mm-hmm. was something from something from a, a game that we played. And it was just a, a plus one magic axe, but then it also makes your hair grow out of foot if you get hit with it. And I always tried to include like little random things like that that aren't don't have like a huge amount of obvious utility. utility. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because that's actually a really <laughs> neat thing, because then if you have like a surplus of healing, but you really need some rope, you just like <laughs> hit someone with an axe mm-hmm. a couple of times and you grow out their hair and then you have some rope. Yeah, there's a word for these kinds of items that I remember using for some game or the other where, like, uh, that would randomly roll effects. Yeah. I might be thinking of Morrowind or maybe Diablo, one of the Diablo games. Um, but yeah, like, effects that, like, have no immediately apparent use but are good for flavor, but also good for those edge cases where you can, like, be inventive with what, with what you can do with them. And I agree, yeah, it definitely makes the world feel more, like, it's not exactly wild magic because it still follows a rule, but it, it puts the feel of wild magic back into the idea of, of magical items. Yeah, because each magic item follows its own specific rule rather than rather than they all follow one big collective rule. It's Each each will follow its own sort of weird thing. Hmm. Actually, I think that... I can't remember when I first started deciding on one-off magic items. It's a lot more work to do it that way. Right. But... I, I sort of decided on doing that because I want things to be more magical and more exciting. Because if you just get a plus one magic sword, it's like, well, okay. I am now 5% more likely to hit. Yeah. You know, that's okay. It's, it doesn't have the feel of magic. Ma- magic items should have at least a name, if not some, you know, neat special effect. And then even if you do special effects in terms of like, you know, it, it emits glowing orange particles, that's usually not enough. Because it's people sort of forget about it, and then you have to remember it every time you describe the sword hitting. So it's it's usually I usually try to add in little special effects, or like once a day you can make flowers grow in a circle around you, or something, and then someone can figure out their own use for it. 
or at least add it to their character in some way. But yeah, that's that's a thing that I do in tabletop games and generally recommend. And then it's useful in narrative because then each time they find a magic item, it's not like it's it's basically serves the same function in the narrative, right? Is that each magic item is its own unique thing and then you have to like test it and experiment with it unless it's one that you has already been tested and experimented with in the past. Right. And the investiture nature itself, like was that also specifically added? No. And it in actual D D game I think it'd be kind of bad. It'd be yeah. bad to tie a well, I can see a case where it'd be good and a case where it would be bad. But, so um, in, in this particular case, it, it adds a immense amount of importance to one of the characters, right? Like yeah. it's kind of a, a plot a plot pusher for like her to know about all these where these magic items are and have her be important in terms of like you know keyed towards and all these kinds of things, which is yeah. what kind of made me think like is whether it was something invented for the story in particular. Yeah, it was. Part of it was, I think part of it was an extension of like okay, so she's descendant of this big bad. Mm-hmm king who was like the king of all kings and he had just so much magic stuff and she has access to some fraction of it by virtue of her specific bloodline right she's the closest by generation direct descendant yeah yeah she's also agnatic i I can't remember what it is but she's the closest direct female descendant but she's also closest descendant so she doesn't get the things that the closest male descendant. The closest male descendant is um, uh, Larkspur Prentice, who's her her cousin, and he right. gets some some fraction of them. But if he kills her, then he would get all the stuff. He wouldn't get all the stuff that goes to the closest female descendant, but he would get all the stuff that goes to the closest descendant because that would then be him. Right, and um, it's kind of a way of giving her power from her bloodline that's not intrinsic to her but like makes her bloodline meaningful without just being like just oh she's just naturally very strong at one of these branches of magic or all these branches of magic or something like that yeah and she's actually fairly weak at her branch of magic right so just a single one of these out because there's just so many of them and you know a lot of them are fascinating for a number of reasons in their own way but just a single one of them out did you specifically make gem magic Subvert expectations, or is is gem? I mean, I guess you don't have to answer this one, but is gem magic gonna like, like come out the gate at some point and like rise to everyone's? I'm assuming everyone's expectations of what gem magic would do, because um, I don't know. Okay, I I know I was originally writing it just sort of because I wanted more of that like exploration of of magic, and I kind of wanted one that was underwhelming yeah. in a lot of respects. But there's still, I mean, there's still room for it. Yeah, it has like a very specific kind of value that I think was was well shown in the um, prison. Yeah, and I was just I felt like while I was reading things about gem magic, I would constantly think like this is just such a great subversion that I had to know if it was on yeah. purpose or not. Like it's mostly on purpose. Yeah, I might I might come back. It's one of those things that I need to start keeping a separate list of things that don't necessarily need to be paid off. Yeah, but I mean it's it's something that June clearly is hoping like will pay off eventually. So yeah. I'm I'm right there with him. Um, any questions that you'd want to ask or things that you want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I got I've had people <laughs> ask me like if I'm okay, <laughs> <laughs> which is I'm I I do want to say that I'm okay. That's good. To and know. I'm not I'm not 17 anymore. Right. So. <laughs>
But this this is mostly how how I experience being seventeen. Not like being thrust into the fantasy world. Right, but right. The, the flashback stuff is mostly my experience, I guess. Yeah. I actually really enjoy the flashback stuff too, I want to say. It's the kind of thing that I think a lot of stories could have in them and be less compelling than the main narrative, but I, I enjoy the flashbacks every time. In part because of the humor of and the conversations around the D and D table, but I mean outside of that too. Yeah. I got a comment. I think I was on like chapter ten or something, and it wasn't it had not picked up steam as far as readership mm-hmm. at that point. And someone was just like, you know, if I, these these flashbacks, I, I don't care about them. Mm-hmm. And if there's more of them, I'm just not going to read. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> have fun not reading that. <laughs> right. I didn't say that because I didn't want to come off as like smarmy or like I don't care about you. But yeah, the thoughts I basically have in those circumstances, like, well, I guess I'll see how you get any more comments from this person or not. Yeah, we we we'll have to do an episode on accepting criticism yeah. or accepting feedback, maybe. Sounds good. At some point, but I definitely like read that and I was like, okay, well, I don't know how I can better signal that this is not a work for you. Right. I assume at some point pe- people like that are just selected out. But it's one of those things where it's really hard to you'd say up front what kind of story this is and who it's going to appeal to and stuff like that. Right. And, you know, those worst feeling reasons to lose a reader. I still occasionally get comments about um, present tense writing that <laughs> just make me feel like, oh, yeah. well, fuck. <laughs> yeah, so I really enjoyed it. Glad to have had it brought to my attention in such a interesting way. I would have probably... <laughs> I, I kind of wish I could have read it, you know, without the experience of knowing it was you too, just to have, have had that experience and then find out and like go through that recognition with everyone. Yeah. But it also would have been interesting if I had done that and then been like, hey, we should totally get this Cthulhu of a Japeson guy, uh, on, yeah, on the podcast. Yeah. I, I actually, I did, I did think about that, <laughs> but I was like, I was like trying to figure out a way to do it. Well, obviously the way to do it is to get a voice filter and just play both sides, but. Yeah. Well, I was trying to, I was trying to figure out a way that I could just be like, hey, you should read this. And then, <laughs> and then, well, then I was like, well, what if, what if he hates it? What if he hates it? And then, and then he's like, comes to me. It's like, hey, let's, let's not do this episode. That would have been an interesting episode too. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I liked it because of this reason. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually had originally intended to wait till the end, but it's just, it's so long now. And right. I'm probably going to be writing it for another like six months uh i don't know it depends on how fast i go right i'm just gonna be writing it for so long and it's kind of a pain to switch back and forth at this point so yeah cool uh well thanks for writing it and uh i look forward to the next chapter like everyone else yeah thanks for listening everyone 